Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Hanukkah. It's Sunday. It's, I guess, the third day. And I figured um, I'll say a few words about Hanukkah, the history of Hanukkah, in a, in a particular way. Um, first of all, Today's uh, talk is being sponsored. Today's podcast is being sponsored by the Grossmans in Jerusalem. Stephen and Irene Grossman, formerly of Baltimore, Maryland, they made Aliyah a number of years ago. And they're kind enough to say that they listened to the podcast, and in that light, they're sponsoring this one that we're doing today on Hanukkah. And as always, I'm grateful to Stephen, Irene, and the family. I know the family also, and um, I hope that. Uh, They'll have a good Hanukkah, and other people will sponsor as well. And now, uh, it's a confluence of two things that made me think about what I was going to talk about today. Instead of a simple bio. Uh, Somebody I know in Baltimore, Shlomo Horowitz, wrote to me the other day, and he said, is it true that Athens uh, was not a a big deal at the time of Hanukkah? Words to that effect. No, it's about Greece. Who are the Greeks? And, And I said, it wasn't. Uh, and that let me think that most people have no idea when we talk about Hanukkah what, what Yevonim are because we use this as a, a kind of a, a term Yevonim Nigbetsu Alai and Bimei Malchus Yavon Harashav and so forth and so on and Yavon is a country called Greece but uh, the country called Greece that we have today it's, there's a country in Europe called Greece never existed until the 1800s uh, not that long ago there was a single country called Greece uh, and yet, most Jews probably think the Hanukkah was a battle between uh, Israelis and Greeks, between Yehudim and Yevonim. Uh Secondly, I saw yesterday, maybe on paper somewhere on the internet, a rather cute article by a guy who is a rabbi in Greece, Orthodox rabbi, I, I think, and he was saying that over there they're very uncomfortable, the Greek Jews are very uncomfortable with Hanukkah because, you know, you're cussing out the Yavanim, then they are members of Yavan, and apparently they're Greek patriots or something like that. This can happen with Jews sometime. They want to live in Greece today, today. And therefore, in their, if, if I remember reading this article correctly, he said in their Nusach, in their uh, Siddur, uh, you know, they don't have the words Malchus Yavan Harashar or something like that. Right? They don't want to mention Yavan. And they, they will go to great lengths to say it wasn't Yavanim. So, uh, thirdly, over Shabbos, I took the shul, uh, as I do on Hanukkah, I took the Maral book, you know, what's it called, the uh, Ner Mitzvah? Maral is into historiosophy of trying to take the story of Hanukkah and turn it into mega important, mega meta-historical uh, significance, and uh, therefore it's a, he sees it as a titanic battle between Yisrael and Yavad, uh, as foretold in the biblical stories of the Dreams in the book of Daniel, in chapter one, uh, chapter two, I guess, and in chapter seven, you know, the, the statue with the four heads, I mean, the four parts of the body, you know, 
golden head and the silver arms and so forth and so on. And these are the four kingdoms. The third one is Greece. The other one, therefore, is significant. And later in chapter 7, I believe, Daniel has a dream of the four monsters. And again, the third one, the leopard with the wings, is also Yavon. And, you know, Tamarali goes into great lengths analyzing this. The, it's, one, it's one of the few books I think Tamarali actually published in his lifetime, I think. But anyway, and that itself has spawned an entire uh, literature and culture. Who has not been in Yeshiva or Beis Yaakov or somewhere and heard some same kind of speech all the time? The Yavonim, they were into this. And Claudius Yisrael was into that. As if people know what the Yavonim were into. <laughs> you know. Now, um, let's speak. So, so that's why I'm going to address a few minutes today to discuss this. Try to bring some light. At least as I understand this. I say every time. I can only share with you the way I understand it. I'm not saying this is what it was. This is the way I understand it. And there used to be, and I think there's a lot of conflation going on. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean. It's a place called Greece, not a country. There were the Greek city-states way back when. We all learned this when we were kids. There was Athens and Sparta and Corinth and Thebes, etc., etc. And these cities fought with each other. You've heard of the Peloponnesian Wars. That's just one of many. Uh, you read Thucydides and so forth. I mean, they had bloody wars one with the other. On the other hand, the cities, the, the Greek city-states also got along in some sense or another, and they considered themselves all part of Greece. Okay, They all believed in the gods of Mount Olympus, and they all had the same language, and uh, you know they had the same basic culture. Somebody was a big writer or a poet. In that culture, you know, was known and, and, and held in, in high regard, whether it was in Athens or in Corinth or in Thebes or in this place or Sparta, whatever. Okay? But there wasn't a country called Greece. There was the Yavonim. And they were, for for being small states, they were fairly powerful uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. And they organized, in each case, their um, uh, city government, uh, you know, the way that they did. Some were more what we call demos democracy. Some were kings, like in Sparta. Some were aristocracies, oligarchies, and all that sort of business. So if somebody were to take a class in, in, in Greek history, ancient Greek history, uh, usually by that would be understood classical Greece. And classical Greece is the Greece that's famous. The ones that came up with the big culture, with the uh, great writers, uh, with the poets, and uh, the thinkers, I mean by that the philosophers, particularly the big three, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, right, or connected with Athens and so forth. And these are the people who, um, you might say, took Greek thought into a very abstract and chashava level. Ad kach that people are still interested in till today, and, and all the time, and uh, teaching in colleges and so forth about the Greek philosophers. Now, you don't see anybody doing courses, not really, Egyptian philosophers from ancient times, uh, Moabite philosophers, Aramean philosophers, you see what I'm going? Hittite philosophers, uh, you know, Canaanite philosophers, Philistine philosophers, none of that. Greek philosophers, yes. So in Echanami, there is something unique about Greece, the way the culture evolved. Now, if you know about India and China, that's uh, but put that aside, Okay. Put that aside. Talk about what we call the Western uh, culture. And so, uh, during what we would call the classical period, the Greek 
Choshev um, culture was formed. But the Jews weren't there yet. This is roughly the time of the Churban Beis Amigdash, um, Ezra Nehemiah, uh, the real golden age. I mean, it's hard to quantify this, but the real golden age of uh, of Greece is usually associated with around the time of Pericles and things like that, which would equal uh, Ezra Nehemiah, not that we know much about that, Tukufa, and without getting into the arguments about you know the chronology, though the Jews, the Seder Olam and all that business. But, you know, the five hundred, the late 500s, early 400s, the 400s, the, you know, roughly speaking, I'm speaking roughly, let's say from 550 to 350 to 250, something like that, okay? No, to 350. 550 to 350, roughly. Those two centuries. Now, I would remind you, Al Pashib shot, Basim English was destroyed in 586 BC. So, in other words, Basim English destroyed a little bit before what we call the Golden Age of Greece. So, the Jews... At that time, it would be in Bavel, Gaulus Bavel, the way we understand it, okay? There's no shakas really with the Greeks. Fine, let that be. Now, during the time of, uh, what shall I say, Anshayas Agdola, uh, Queen Esther, and so forth and so forth, roughly in that era, you had the famous wars between the Persians and the Greeks, in which the Persian kings, first Darius and then Xerxes, not that we can fit this into the Chazal system. Don't even try that. But Darius and Xerxes, we know, tried to conquer the Greeks, and they were unsuccessful. There's a lot written on it. Okay, this go back to Herodotus and so forth. And uh, even though the Greeks were smaller, but they defeated the Persian efforts. And Adraba, the the great Greek effort to hold back the Persians, which was bloody but ultimately crowned with success. This is the battles of Thermopylae and uh, Salamis and Plataea and so forth, without going into details. This really gave a tremendous shot in the arm to the to the Greeks' uh, self-image, and that's really when you had some of the most significant uh, thinkers and writers and artists being produced in Greece. When you call Yaftol Himli Yefes, this is really what they have in mind. I repeat, none of this has to do with the Jews, and the Jews were not part of the Greek scene at all. Now, go after 350 BCE, afterwards, then you start to see the following. The Greeks were talented in many areas except for politics. They couldn't get their act together to unite. Instead, it's one city always against the other. Uh, the time was, I mean, it was just a question of time. Sooner or later, some smart cookie will play one off against the other. And that was Philip of Macedon. The king of Macedonia is north of Greece, nearby. He's not Greek, but he was educated in Greek. So he could consider himself culturally Greek. And he was very sneaky, and eventually he conquered the Greece. Notice he eventually took over Athens and Sparta and this one and the other through wars, okay? Uh, sometimes they revolted against him and he crushed them. So these were Macedon- Macedonians. He didn't necessarily like the Greeks. He admired the Greek culture. He, part- he was a conservative member of the Greek culture, but he crushed Greece. And his son was Alexander the Great. Now, Again, without all the details, Philip was assassinated and Alexander became the king. So Alexander was the king of Macedonia, not of Greece. But by the time of Alexander, Greece had been crushed by Macedonia and was like a province of the of the kingdom of Macedonia. Get it? So the glory was already departed. Uh, they say that Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander, which means that Philip, when he conquered all these cities, he, for his own pure reasons, he said, I want my son to have the best education so he'll be a smart king after me. 
And so he gave him the, the smartest guy he knew, which is Aristotle. Not because he was Mashiv, Chachmor, this, that, and the other. They wanted his son to have an advantage to everybody else by being tutored by the smartest guy. Okay. But what happened was that when Alexander came to king of Macedon together with all these Greek things, he invaded and, and, and devoted the rest of his life to the conquest of the Persian Empire, which was next door. The Persian Empire, as we know, was 127 provinces, like it says in the Book of Esther. And it really did extend from India to Ethiopia. It really was that big. Or for our purposes, it was like the modern-day Turkey, what's called Asia Minor, you know, plus a little bit, all the way to India. And Alexander the Great conquered all that. That's, when, that's why he called Alexander the Great, because of his military success. When he did this, so Alexander conquered the Persians with a small army, 30,000, 40,000 men. It's incredible. That's why he's called Alexander the Great. He was a military genius. And he defeated the Persians again and again till he, till he busted them. Okay? Now, then, since that means that this Greek-speaking king, who was not Greek, was a Macedonian, who had crushed the Greeks, but was educated by Aristotle. There was much of Greek culture. You know, it's thought, it's language, all the rest of it. He conquered 127 provinces. Oh, so then he became in contact with Jews. You see? Because in the Persian Empire, somewhere in the 127 provinces was Jews. If you uh, literally follow the book of Esther, you know, the Haman says they're everywhere, right? And uh, anyway, he must have gone into, I mean, we know he went through Judea on his way to conquer Egypt. So he passed through Israel, one form or the other, even the coast or not. Now, the Jewish tradition, as we all know, is Alexander met uh, Shimon Tzadik and bowed down to him and gave positive things for the Jews. The Gaisha histories don't have any of that. Uh, but they do acknowledge that Alexander was okay with the Jews. He didn't go after them. Now, uh, that's very important because Alexander died young. It was a shock. And after that, everybody looked at him as unbelievable person. And so, for my purposes, if Alexander was okay with the Jews, that means from the Greek point of view, the Jews are legitimate, you see? Now, when Alexander died, um, so his successors fought it out, it's really a lot of wars. I would not bore you with all the details. I mean, a lot of wars, you know, between Antigonus and this guy and Perdiccas, and oh my goodness, you got to have a scorecard. Very few people can walk their way through all those wars of what he called the Diadochia, the successors. But by the time the dust settled as far as we're concerned, like in the book of Daniel, there were two guys standing as far as the Middle East is concerned. One was Ptolemy, the king of Egypt. In other words, Alexander had a general named Ptolemy, and uh, he was smart. Tafasta Maruba Lo Tafasta. And so he said, I'm just going to get Egypt. Egypt is very rich. If I hold on to Egypt, somebody else can have the rest of the empire. I'll be rich and powerful just from Egypt. Then he was correct. But the others fought for the rest of it. And as far as we're concerned, Seleucus, one of the other generals, ended up with most of the remainder of Alexander's empire. In other words, Syria, uh, Turkey, uh, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan even, and so forth and so on. Okay? Now, as far as Eretz Yisrael is concerned, as far as the Jews are concerned, what it means is as follows. From now on, from around the year 300 approximately, the Battle of Ipsus, around 300, uh, so from 300 to 200, and 200 to 
let's look, look at it like that. 300 to 200. That's 100 years. It's a long time. So the Jews everywhere were under these uh, Macedonian rulers. You hear what I just said? They weren't Greek. They're Macedonian rulers. Actually, they're generals of Alexander who grabbed the power and were like mafia. They would just kill anybody in their way. And brother killed sister and intrigues and all kinds of stuff. And a, a movie and a miniseries would not do justice to it. Okay? Constant assassinations and so on and so forth. These guys had grabbed power. They had no right to it. They just took it. And they were Greek. So one of the things they did, meaning Greek in the language, they were Macedonians actually. They weren't mocks of culture and that sort of thing. They're rough and gruff generals. And they want to hold on to the power. Now, how do you hold on to the power? Let's say, for example, you're Seleucus. And you rule an area, like I said before, Syria plus Turkey, which is big already, plus Iraq, plus Iran, plus Pakistan, plus Afghanistan. Really, Afghanistan too. That's a huge area with uh, lots of different nations and nationalities and personalities over there. So here comes the thing. Two things happened. Number one, the whole world was so shocked that, the Greek, that this Macedonian army, which to them, they conflated with the Greeks because they said they speak Greek, sort of. The kings are kind of Greekish. Uh, as I said before, he was a Talmud of Aristotle, the king. And so, Legabi them, they're not Machal between Macedon and this part and Sparta and Plataea and Corinth and Thebes and this and that. You know, it's the Greeks, right? Like you get a genetic name called the Greeks. That's one thing. And what happened most remarkably is that all the subject peoples, the Syrians, or as we would call today, Aram, the Babylonians, the Persians, the others, were so bowled over by the success of this new conquest that they say, figured this must be a superior race, a superior God-given culture. The Greeks must be in with the gods or stickle gods themselves. Who knows how their pagan minds you know, uh, uh, absorbed and associated all this, you know, digested all this. But that's what they did. And the captive peoples in many places started to want to be Greek in one form or another. Now, if you're the peasants or the farmers out there, it's not going to happen. You still want to keep your own language. You just learn enough Greek to get along with the authorities. If you're, however, the rulers, right? let's say you're Seleucus or his successors, if Seleucus one, Seleucus two, Antiochus one, Antiochus two, you know, Antiochus three, and so forth. Uh, so, how do you rule your empire? So, here's the interesting thing: uh, they didn't speak all the different languages of the subject people. The, the you know the ruler is not going to learn the Persian and the Babylonian and the Aramaic and the Hebrew and the Phoenician and the They say like this: We're Greek. We're the uh, gods. We're the, we're the bosses around here. And you got to learn our language. But so they, they tried to uh, run the empires that they had through the use of uh, a bureaucracy and a military that was primarily either Greek in the sense they'd been born in Greece or Macedonia, or else um, were educated in that way so they could be Greekized or Hellenized. And so what I'm trying to get across to you is that if you look in the Middle East, from 300 to 200, and at the time of Hanukkah, you see a situation in which there are a lot of native peoples who are to one degree or another Hellenized, but you also saw whole areas that the kings um, fostered that were uh, of Greeks. So, for example, I'll just give you an example. Let's say I'm King Seleucus, the King Antiochus. Uh, I want to have people on my side. I will invite people from Greece, from Athens. 
come and settle in my kingdom. If you do, I'll give you 10 years off of taxes or whatever. Something like that. And Adraba, you speak Greek, you're going to be on my side against the local Hicks. The local Hicks could be Phoenicians, Arameans, Babylonians, Jews, whatever. And you guys will be my side. You'll have jobs with the government. You'll be tax collectors. You'll be administrators. You'll be bureaucrats. You'll be mayors. You'll be army officers. All kinds of things like that. And so there's a constant stream of immigration from Greece, Greece, from Athens and, uh, you know, like I say, the other cities over there, right? You know, the other uh, Greek cities. Ephesus, whatever. There's a constant immigration to the Seleucid Empire, including Israel, right? Why? Let's say I'm uh, 18 years old and I'm from Athens. Uh, at that time, the Macedonians were holding Athens down by force. It's not fun to live there. But if I immigrate to uh, Egypt, or in the, I'm interested in the case of the Seleucid Empire, if I immigrate over there, I go to Damascus, or Akko, or Babylon, or something like that, I'm pretty much sure I'm going to get a job with the government, with a, with a salary, and somewhere in the bureaucracy, because I speak Greek, I'm Greek like the kings are Greek, or Macedonian, I'm on their side against the locals, I'm reliable, and the king anyway wants to foster this. Sometimes whole cities were set up by these Greek rulers, as Greek cities, so that there'll be fortresses of Greekism against the countryside, which was not Greek. Uh, this was a, a danger for the Jews also. And if you read the book of Maccabees closely, at one point, Antiochus IV gets so peeled with Judah Maccabee for defeating him several times, he tells his general Lysias, go wipe out the Jews. He says those words, wipe out the Jews and bring in Greek colonists and they'll settle in the land. <laughs> Get it? So they're literally, uh, you know... Uh, be Maurice. They'll kick the Jews out and they'll put Goyim in all the land that the Jews are in. That's before the Battle of Emmaus. So this is the reality that the Jews faced. Uh, so the Hellenistic culture was very powerful because, as I said before, it just is. Meaning, we're not into... Somebody raise your hand if you can show me a good example of Babylonian architecture that's popular. Nobody even knows what that is, right? Or of, uh, I don't even think ancient Egyptian uh, is popular. A little bit, a little bit. I saw one in the Vatican once, but a little bit. But uh, Greek architecture is always popular, you see? Uh, anytime you know anything about real estate, as far as I can tell, there's always two types of architecture out there. Whatever is popular at the moment and classical. You know, everybody likes to buy a house, has Greek pillars and, uh, you know, marble and the white stuff. And uh, what do you call it? The uh, swimming pool with the white thing in the back. Uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it's an, it always comes back in architecture. Uh, in notions of beauty. Uh, I think you notice in the ancient world, fat was in. Thanks to the Greeks, fat is out. It's not skinny, but well-built. When I say well-built, the way the Greeks did it. You understand? So they even, you know, brainwashed everybody out of what's considered cool in terms of personal good looks. Uh even today, we use the expression, oh boy, he looks like a Greek god. Oh, she's beautiful. She looks like a Greek goddess. They use these terms in English even today. In other words, the Greek notions of aesthetics, of the, of thinking about, you know, uh, putting a little bit of philosophical thought into uh, yofi and, and uh, harmony and proportion, you know, this is associated with the Greek thinkers. You understand? Uh, that's how I see it. And it's, it's quite interesting. I'll give an example. 
in the ancient world, if you got it, you flaunt it. So if I have a ring, I'll wear a ring. If I'm rich enough to have two rings, I'll wear two rings. So a hush of a lady, once upon a time long ago from that culture, wear 10 rings, 20 rings. After all, think of the Yemenite bride, you know, which is in the book of Isaiah, the 24 pieces of jewelry that go along with a bride. The nose ring, the earring, the this ring, the that ring, and all that. If you got it, you flaunt it. The Greeks worked at a, a, a through their, you know, the way their culture uh, developed. They said, no, 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 no. Don't wear 50 diamonds. That looks ugly. Uh, have a white dress with a single diamond over here. And, you know, and the single one against the, uh, the the plain background gives a more aesthetic look. These are, you know, Greek notions. Now, the Jews, that means, ever since the time of Alexander the Great, were involved with the Greeks, but not with the Greeks from, from you know, Greece, Greece, but with the Seleucids, with the Ptolemies, with the rulers. The rulers were interested in Hellenizing the population to a degree, uh, but the rulers did not force everybody to join their religion. Uh, the Greeks had their own religious ideas, as you know, the gods, and wherever they set up these Greek colonies, that's what they did. You know, they had temples to Zeus and Minerva and so on and so forth. But out there, other groups had the other gods. Over the course of time, since it's a Vodazar anyway, so a lot of these kind of intermingled, and you ended up with, with uh, syncretistic systems, which had Greek gods mixed together with Babylonian gods, or whatever. You know, especially it's happened in Egypt, where they took, uh, you know, Serapis. They took uh, the body of a man and the head of an animal, you know, something like that, because they couldn't understand why the Egyptians worship animals. Uh, I hope this makes sense. Now, um, all this means is, if you're Jewish, let's say you live between 300 and 200, so what do you know about Greece? Well, you got the Greek rulers, uh, meaning the Macedonian rulers. Uh, they're ruling by power. Uh, they get taxes. Are they anything impressive? Well, not really. Okay, what do I mean when I say not really? Power they have, so you got to you know, kiss up to them. And uh, you know, let's put it this way. The externals, they did have. The new notions of uh, beauty. The new notions of aesthetics. New notions of uh, proportion. Uh, however, it's a Dover Yudua that after, as a result of the fact that Philip and Alexander crushed the Greeks, they also crushed their originality. And uh, the Greeks are not machadesh in, um, in the post-Alexander period. Uh, no new special ideas. Instead, what you have is the constant replaying of the old ideas. And so it's like today, somebody saying, I guess, I like Beethoven. Fine, I respect that. I like Beethoven too. But it's nothing new in that, get it? It's just another way of playing the Fifth Symphony, you know what I mean? You know, how do you play classics over and over again? That's what the Greeks had already. But there's no, nothing new in terms of ideas that was chashev. Now, there were new ideas. In the Hellenistic, so the period I'm talking about is called the Hellenistic period, after Alexander the Great, when Greek culture is viewed as having gone into a decline, uh, in, in radical decline in terms of quality, especially in terms of his hotches of real ideas. The new ideas that you've had over there were mixed together usually with local Avodazaras. Uh, happened a lot like in Egypt, for example, in Babylonia, in Syria, and to the east, I won't go into that. And therefore, if you're Jewish, uh, you don't see anything that gets beyond, you know, the, the, the local and paganistic level to the universal. 
You see, if somebody was Jewish, and let's say, for example, they read Socrates' questions about life, about God, that's a universal. You could ask that question in any religion. Those is, is what to talk about, you see? Uh, if you have Plato's ideas about what's the correct, the perfect form of government, that's a universalistic idea. That can be d discussed and thought about in any context. You know, what's the right and proper form of government? All the arguments for and against. And Aristotle's idea on the sciences and the classification of knowledge and all that kind of thing. But when you get past Aristotle period, when you get to the time of the, uh, as I say before, after Alexander the Great, wh which is when the Jews come to contact with Greece, uh, the Greek culture, because it was so spread widely across the area of Alexander's conquest, all the way to Afghanistan and India, was spread too thin. And instead of being continuing to develop in a rich fashion as it had beforehand, it got really watered down and mixed together with a lot of foreign ideas, and the result was nothing special. Okay? So, for example, what are the great um, philosophical movements of the Hellenistic era, meaning the time that the Jews encountered the Greeks? It'd be the Stoics and Epicureans, you know? So the Epicureans are talking about, you know, how do you get... Neither of these two are interested in truth. What they're interested in is, uh, shall I say, happiness or uh, fulfillment, uh, what they used to call eudaimonia, you know, uh, proper living. Uh, well, you know, the, the Torah can help you with that. You understand? It's it, you're not talking science anymore. Get it? With Aristotle, with um, certainly with Socrates, you're talking science, or it attempts to understand things scientifically. Uh, what you're talking about now was not science. It's just what's the best way of getting through life. A Stoic will say, "Listen, just go with the flow. Don't let." things get to you. That's really the basis of Stoicism. If good things happen, don't get too happy. If bad things happen, don't get too sad. Right? Make yourself, you know, uh, steal yourself for, to living better in that kind of adversity. I get it. That's more of a religious thing than a science thing. That's more of a way of saying uh, self-help. I'll, I'll help you get through life better. If you're an Epicurean, you have very interesting philosophy in which you say uh, life consists of getting the most bang for your buck. So how do I get the most Hana out of life? Because, you know, whoever dies with the most toys wins. And that's not even true, because when you're dead, you're dead, according to, to the Epicureans. When you're dead, you're dead. You know, it's, it's all over. And so the life consists of copying Orion as much as possible, as much of Olam Haz as, as, as you can get. Um, so, and, you know, they could refine this into thinking, you know, how many hot dogs should you eat? If you eat 10 hot dogs, you get sick and tired of hot dogs. So should you eat a half a hot dog and continue the appetite, or should you eat two hot dogs, you know, and and, and sustain, satisfy your desire for now, but keep it up for for later on? These are not impressive to most Jewish thinkers. You get it? Uh, they, they, they're not very powerful. It's not the glory of Greece that the Jews encounter. That's what I'm trying to say. It wasn't the excellence of Greece that the Jews encountered. The excellence of Greece had taken place earlier. Uh, before Alexander came along and his father and messed up the city-states. The city-states provided the environment, apparently, for the right amount of bubbling to take place within the Greek culture. They could come up with all kinds of interesting and uh, new ideas, which indeed challenged the Greek religion, right? That's why they killed Socrates. But uh, by the time you get to Antiochus III, Antiochus IV, the kings are in charge. They demand absolute obedience and money. Uh, they lived the life of parties and all that kind of stuff because 
because they are basically, you know, what's the right word? Uh, you know, behemoths. And I know you think I'm saying to be funny, but if you actually take the trouble to study these things, you'll see who they are. Right? They're behemoths. And so uh, the kings demand to be worshipped as gods uh, because, you know, they want to get the maximum uh, obedience out of the subjects. So uh, even though everybody knows that this guy's not a god, we still call him Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Theos, like Antiochus II, or uh, uh, Ptolemy Soter, Ptolemy the Savior. I mean, you know, give me a break. Everybody knows these guys are just kings, and they're living the life of Riley somewhere in the palaces. But, you know, you have to say, you have to go along and say that they're gods. Uh, like, like you did under communism. You have to say Stalin is great. You have to once you do like that, it's not really an intellectually defensible kind of proposition. It's politics. Okay, if it's politics, the person just doing to hold on to his power. But it's not nothing that would grab, you know, uh, from the intellectual point of view, the attention of a Jew. That's my point. Now the Jews were profoundly affected by the Hellenization of culture in general, simply because, like in America, if you want to get along, you gotta learn English. If you want to understand and function in society, the more you understand about how America is the better you'll do, most likely. And so Jews ended up speaking Greek in one form or another. By the way, the Greek language itself changed. It used to be the pure Greek of the classical period, which all the great works of the Greek writers were produced in. And then, after Alexander, they developed this coining business, which is not exactly, but something like a Greek Yiddish. Something like that. When I say Yiddish, I don't mean Jewish-wise. It was Greek mixed up with a lot of the words of the Babylonians and the Egyptians and all the other conquered peoples. And that became the kind of Greek that was used afterwards. And that itself shows you that it was uh, not the pure thing, but it was, uh, what's the right word? Dumbed down. Okay? And so, if you have the kind of system I just described, so let's say, by the time you get to the Hanukkah story, so it's the Seleucids have conquered Palestine, Israel, uh, or, or around the year 200, a little bit after that. Okay, 198, something like that. And... Okay, now they're in charge of Israel. Uh, Antiochus III and Antiochus IV and Seleucus IV in the middle. Big deal. Are these people so impressive? They're kings constantly looking for money to make payroll to pay the army. They're raiding palaces. They're killing their wives. They're marrying their sisters. Who knows what they're doing? You understand? They're intriguing one against the other constantly. This is nothing to look up to. It's not a religiously inspiring kind of vision. You understand? What does it mean? You got to be... When, when Antiochus said you got to bow down to the gods. What was that all about? People really believe in these gods? Even the guy didn't believe in these gods anymore. Every All historians know that after Alexander, there developed uh, a very pronounced a religious crisis, not only political crisis, religious crisis in Greek, uh, in, in the Hellenistic era, which means that the questions that have been raised by the Greek philosophers against religion... I had no good answers. You know, I'm talking about uh, Aristotle particularly. And the Greeks themselves, you know, stopped believing this stuff really. Uh, they didn't at the superstitious level, but even the word superstition comes from this time when they say what used to be religious belief is now considered like a superstition. And they were looking for uh, new ideas, actually, uh, with, with, re with, with theological vitality that would provide a real explanation of the meaning of life, which the Greek old religions didn't provide, you know, which the Greek old religions did not provide. Uh, 
this is like a major theme of what happens in the 200s and the 100s BC and the 100 CE. And uh, I've said this many times. I'm sure I did a, another podcast. This is precisely why, in the period I just said, in the 200s and the 100s, Judaism became a missionary religion. You hear what I say? The problem was not so much the Jews are going to convert to believing in the Greek gods, but the other way around. That's interesting what I just said. The problem was not that Jews were converting to believing in the Greek gods, because the Greeks weren't, the intelligent Greeks weren't believing in it anymore, or the local peoples weren't. Uh, Adraba, people who saw this king is a god and that queen is a, is, is, a, is a goddess, and the king and the queen are brother and sister marry each other, like with the Ptolemies. Ew, it's nothing to respect as a real god. You're just using the term god. It's not really like a Boreolum type situation. <clears throat> and as a result, a lot of Greeks and a lot of peoples in the Greek world began looking for new things. And one of the things, one of the things they looked for, I mean, there are many different cults flourished because whenever religion goes into crisis, cults pop up. Uh, uh, old religious ideas of conquered people flourished, like the Egyptian ideas. Uh, yeah. And uh, that of the, the Egyptians were conquered by, by Alexander, but the Egyptian religious ideas penetrate into Greek thought, um, and all kinds of syncretistic systems popped up. And uh, what I want to say, the 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 Jewish one of the things that flourished also with Judaism. In other words, there are X number of people in this Greek world that I just described: the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemy Empire, uh, who. They're going, looking for some meaning in life. They might go to the local synagogue. In fact, this is when synagogues began, because when the Jews lived in Israel, they had a base of English. Once they went into the Greek world and spread all over the place after Alexander's conquest, the Jews moved all over the place in these empires that I'm describing now in the Hellenistic period, because they did it for, for Parnosa. Um, so you have a Migdash Ma'at. So you have a synagogue. Synagogue being a Greek word, isn't that right? And uh, we had the Torah reading on Shabbos and uh, things like that. Guess what? A lot of people would come would be non-Jews. Uh, now, some of these non-Jews, what shall I say, went for it full force and ended up converting to Judaism. I don't think so many did because to circumcise, not push it. A lot of them, what they did was they said like this, you know, like in America, have a Hanukkah menorah and else have a Christmas tree. You know, some years... I drop my Christmas tree. Some years I have my Christmas tree when my uncle comes, you know, when my relatives come. Uh, you know, that that kind of attitude, which is they have one foot here and one foot there, like Eliana was complaining, I must say, I ten posts and watch they see, but you had a ton of people throughout the world, Alexandria, in the Greek cities, in Asia Minor, not in Eretz Israel, but um, in uh, the other areas of the Greek world that I'm talking about, a lot of places where you had communities, and there'll be like 20, 30, 40 Jewish families, and another 100 or 200, I don't know how many, uh, non-Jewish families who consider who come for davening. And as you know, it's not against the Jewish religion to have other people there for davening. We have nothing to hide. But uh, this was very characteristic. So, do, uh, as a matter of fact, I always like to say that if you want an Eretz Yisrael Dika um, reaction, from reaction, against what I just described. Uh, they don't like the fact somebody going were coming to Shoal, and they particularly do not like the fact that what the Goyim were doing were picking and choosing 
For example, a person like this, I can't circumcise, but I love the Shabbos idea. Kashos is not for me. Someone else would say the opposite. Say, you know, I like kashos. You know, Shabbos is too hard for me. Or someone else would say, I love Passover. I'm going to keep Passover every year. You know, and so on and so forth. Pick and choose. That's why you have in the davening on Shabbos morning, Right, that people who are Aralim or uncircumcised and are not Jewish by birth should not keep Shabbos. So, if there's a complaint against it, that's a rhetoric against what was going on at that time. Okay? And so where I'm going with all this is that if we don't want to understand uh, the question of who are the Greeks, it's uh, on, on Hanukkah, when we say Malchus Yom Roshav, it wasn't a kingdom of Greece, because such a thing didn't exist. It was Macedonian kingdoms. By that I mean kingdoms that were run by dynasties of Macedonian generals who fought their way to power and killed everybody in their way, or anybody might possibly be a threat. Uh, these Macedonian rulers did uh, practice the Greek culture, and they also worshipped the Greek religion. However, they mushed it up. Uh, they declared themselves gods, which in classical Greece you never did. Um, they demand all kind of titles for themselves, which in classical Greece you never did. They basically were into squeezing as much money out of the subject people so they could live the life of Riley and more importantly pay for their armies, which were always mercenary. Uh, in order to do that, they peopled their officer corps and their civil service and their bureaucracy with Greeks, especially Greek immigrants from Greece. These immigrants weren't coming in to spread the Greek uh, knowledge. They come in to make a Parnoso. Okay? And so, if you're Jewish, you weren't impressed by the spiritual side of Greece. You were impressed by the physical side. It's the opposite of morale. <laughs> right? You weren't uh, blown away. Wow, Yaftal Himiyev is a Greek. So look, look what a wonderful culture they've done. Actually, the Greek culture had been destroyed or crushed by the Macedonians, and the Greeks were now the Evid Avodim of the Macedonians, glad to get a job in their bureaucracy. You see? Uh, so the, 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 the physical was what impressed the Jews. You, you know, the Greeks are powerful. They'll kill you if, you, if, if you'll get in their way. Uh, now, prior to Hanukkah, the Greeks always were willing to let the Jews practice their own religion, as the Greeks were, I mean, talking about the Macedonian rulers, as they were generally with all the local peoples. It wasn't only the Jews. They let the Babylonians do Babylonian things. They let the Egyptians do Egyptian things. They tried to influence them here and there a little bit, but, you know, not too much. And um, all kind of different religious ideas flourished out there. There was cross-pollination. A lot of the Hellenistic stuff penetrated the local religions, including the Jewish, and vice versa. A lot of the local stuff penetrated the uh, Hellenistic religions. Now, what was the result of the interpenetration between the Greek culture and the Jews and the, Jew and the Jewish culture and the Greeks? Christianity, that's what that is. It's the uh, result, in a bastardized way, of a mixture between two different entities. Um... You know, uh, the very fact that they believe in three gods and one god, you know, that's a classic Egyptian Hellenistic mixture together with Judaism. Okay, let it be. What about the other way around? What was the classic representation of the penetration of Hellenistic ideas into Judaism? 
the Septuagint, the translation in Torah and the Greek, uh, which even the Gemara said they had to make certain changes, and those changes are just illustrative of an entire Mahalach, in which you have to make certain adjustments, shall we say, in pure Judaism, in order to uh, make it palatable to the Greek reader and, and the people speaking it out there. I just wanted to, I've gone long enough, I wanted to, you know, touch on all this by way of trying to counter the general narrative, which is the Jews encountered the glory of Greece and the Greeks, how it had a superficial kind of beauty, like we're hearing a hundred schmoozes. Uh, one like that. Not, not the way I understand it. Uh, the Jews encountered a pretty rough Greek uh, uh, government, uh, what shall I say, domination, uh, was based on the sword. Um, the Greeks wanted their religions, uh, you know, worshipped as a sign that you're subservient, you know, to, 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 to the Macedonian dynasty's mastery. Uh, but I don't think there were any higher ideas involved. And Kalvachomer, when you get to the Hanukkah story, a guy like Antiochus IV, who was a real jerk, uh, he was no admirable figure even in Greek culture. So you can't say, Oh, it was a battle between Greek culture and Jewish culture. Rabbi Hanukkah was a sordid business with the Hellenistic Jews who didn't believe in this gods, all the rest of it, but were just trying to kiss up in order to get power uh, so that they should have positions in the civil service and in the uh, you know priesthood and, and all that under the Seleucid kings. This is what provoked, as we all know, the persecution of Judaism and eventually the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, just want to get those few ideas out there today. Maybe I'll continue this later. Maybe not. But I got to go to show. So have a happy Hanukkah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com. Dot rabbi david